0: Listeners, to episode 31 of the Book of Nature podcast, a podcast hosted by three Christians who work in the sciences and enjoy talking about it. With me today, we have Todd Pedler, professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Todd, what's new with you? Uh,
1: Well, what's new is uh, that this episode will drop approximately four days after recording, which is a first for us in a very long time. (laughs) <laughs> We're finally caught up with our back catalog, and and, and uh, uh, here we are a week away from American Thanksgiving um, uh, to be contrasted with Canadian Thanksgiving, which happens on Columbus Day.
0: Well, that's one of the nice things about being an American in Canada is that I get to do both. <laughs> ah,
2: yeah. Didn't even think yep. of that. So that right. so you're saying that we're we're caught up now. So when we're talking about the weather, it'll we'll actually match somewhere in the neighborhood of what the actual weather is in, out indeed. there. Yeah, <laughs> there
1: will no longer be these summer episodes dropping in in the midst of fall.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, That's that was an experience. I don't remember which episode it was, but it was uh, uh, came out in like September, October, something like that. And uh, we're all going, "Hey, what's new with you?" Uh, well, classes are wrapping up. I'm doing final exams and. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Summer's already over. Yeah. And of course, hopefully we're a little more in sync this time. Yep. Okay. Also joining us is Dan Dawson, assistant professor of the atmospheric sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. How's going over there, Dan?
2: Uh pretty good. Um, just uh, trying to wrap up this semester gracefully. Um, getting ready for a trip to Korea in a, uh, just after Thanksgiving, so that'll be fun. Seminar. Um, it's kind of cold outside. Been cold for most of November. Uh, had some sleet the other night, which, as I was talking with Todd before the uh, the we start recording, it's as by my estimation the most pointless winter precip type there is because it doesn't accumulate like snow. It's too dense and it doesn't even look pretty. Because like the like freezing rain when it uh, makes a glaze, so it's just like ah man, sleet. Give me a break. So, could have had three or four inches of snow instead, we just had this, this sleet, which is all this nasty slush right now. But, tis the season.
0: Yeah.
2: Alright, uh,
0: and finally, hoping my computer doesn't know that I'm talking about it. I am Charles Hackney, <laughs> Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the gunslinging border town of Caronport, Saskatchewan. So, today we are talking about A.I., Nope, not the 2001 Spielberg movie. The concept Mm. and science of artificial intelligence. Now, the greatest challenge of this topic is that there is so much out there on AI that any attempt to cover it all would result in us doing a podcast episode larger than one of Dan Carlin's hardcore history podcast episodes. We could talk about AI in fiction. We could talk about the AI, uh, the economics of AI. Uh, We could compare and contrast uh, machine intelligence and the cognitive science of human intelligence. We could talk about that most frightening of events, the singularity. Tons of possibilities, some of which we may cover in future episodes. Today though, we're starting off with the basics. So, Dan, uh, how about you get us started with uh, the history of artificial intelligence. How long have we been trying to figure out ways to make machines think like us?
2: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you you mentioned that there's so much out there that even when you look at the history, it's just like, where do you begin? Depends on how far back you went to look. So as far as like, um, true, what we consider not true, but what we consider AI from a modern standpoint that really began, um, in earnest sometime in the mid 20th century. Um, and before I get to that though, I, I did want to talk a bit about some of the precursors Um, to modern view of or modern definitions, modern um, uh, angles on AI. And it has to do um, with the sort of human perennial human fascination with non-human intelligence and intellect, Um, particularly this concept of endowing human-like intelligence uh, to otherwise inanimate materials or constructs. And this has been, I mean, almost every civilization since um, the dawn of civilization has some kind of this concept within it in its folklore um, and legends. So a good example would be the, the golem of ancient Jewish folklore. This is this, um, this uh, construct made out of uh, earth that could be imbued with um, rational faculties to um, do the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, master's bidding um and we talked about this before on the on the podcast there's also um another uh example would be uh, even you can look at uh, Frankenstein's monster from Mar- Mary Shelley as being a, a, a sort of a proto AI concept in that this was a a a monster cobbled together from parts and then imbued with its own new intelligence that was not um related to um presumably whatever Um, It had before um, when it was alive as a human. Um, And there's, you know, another um, big theme throughout history is this concept of automatons. Not just a concept, but but, um, people building these things called automatons, which, you know, we would consider to be like uh, mechanical androids that would go through the motions of uh, humans and would, you know, do things like – like uh, on stage, like, for example, um, animatronics is a, is an example of uh, automatons, but these existed, you know, in one capacity or another all through um, history. Uh, there's, um, you can you, you envision, for example, during the Industrial Revolution, there was, like, you know, steam-powered um, uh, uh, motions of, like, uh, statues of humans made of uh, metal and other, other things like that. And um, so these were all sort of early proto um, precursors to um, uh, what we consider to be artificial intelligence. Um, during the the Renaissance, we had thinkers such as uh, Leibniz and Descartes. Um, they began to conceive of rational thought as having its own language and rules. So when we think of um, a rational thought, we think of a human being thinking about figuring out how something works, or how to um, apply the rules of logic to some problem, um, and so on. It, so that's what we consider when we think of thought and rational thought in particular. Well, these uh, thinkers were, were wondering if you could somehow codify that process of rational thought um, to write down rules for it, Let me, like, like uh, very specific logical rules, systematize it, so to speak. So uh, one, um, one of, uh, one uh, co- popular concept was like okay, if we could do this instead of philosophical debates, we could simply sit down and calculate the result of a particular dispute we're having to see which one was correct. This was sort of the idea that oh, maybe we could do this. If we could do this, then we would get rid of some of these ambiguities that come with you know, um, uh, um, thought that isn't codified trying to figure out exactly how it ticks. So this, this sort of foreshadowed This concept sort of foreshadowed the modern idea of AI as an attempt to encode human-like rational thought and intelligence into computational algorithms. So there's really deep roots to AI is what I'm hoping uh, folks get out of this. But uh, moving on to what we would consider modern AI, again, I said it began sometime in the mid-20th century, um, birth is widely recognized. have started with this so-called Dartmouth Conference in 1956, which is organized by um, computer scientists John McCarthy, Marvin Minsky, Alan Newell, and Herbert A. Simon. So um, John McCarthy was a professor at Dartmouth at the time. He was the one first coined the term artificial intelligence. Um, so uh, along uh, uh, with this group of, of uh, early pioneer computer scientists to developed this idea of trying to, trying to imbue um, human-like intelligence into um, a computer or machine, uh, was one of the most influential figures of the modern era, not just in, um, in this area, but in many others, as Alan Turing. Um, he came up with a formal mathematical model, actually before this um, 1950s AI conference, um, called the Turing machine. And the reason this is important is because it's a simple machine. It's, a, it's an abstract concept, mathematical model, actually, that's envisioned as some kind of reader that reads symbols off an endless one-dimensional tape. So think of feeding a paper tape into some kind of reader um, with a li- list of symbols on that tape. And it turns out that um, with just a few rules, um, that apply to how it can manipulate those symbols and move the tape back and forth, um, you can actually show mathematically that um, any, if there's any, um, let me make sure I say this correctly here, um, that any computer algorithm that you can conceive that is actually computable within a certain amount of time, and I'm not gonna get into the the sort of the nuances of this because it gets really into the weeds, but any, Basic computer problem of no matter what complexity or how um, long it would take to compute can be solved by this kind of Turing machine, which was a remarkable result at the time. Um, the thesis um, that, that sort of embodies this is the so-called Church-Turing thesis, and we can have some notes in the or we can have some uh, links in the show notes to more info on this. Um, but another uh, way of uh, the looking at this from the other direction, and this will become important later as we start getting into this um, discussion of what AI actually is a little bit later. Um, so the Church-Turing the thesis is: okay, any algorithm that can that's computable, so to speak, or effectively or computable, can be solved by the simple Turing machine. Um, the converse of that is that it, that you can't, you can ask whether an algorithm exists that can decide whether a given statement is provable from the axioms of a logical system. So for example, if you have, um, if you have a system, a logic and you want to figure out, okay, I want to write down all these mathematical postulates, um, and I wanted to be able to decide whether those postulates are true or false with some kind of algorithm. If you ask the question whether such an algorithm exists that is computable, um, which means it would be computable by a Turing machine. The answer seems to be no, that there's no way to solve something like this. So that would be an g- example of a non-computable thing. So a non-computable um, question uh, or problem. And so this this question of debate actually is raging about what 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 um, algorithms are computable, what aren't computable actually is central to what we can how we think of AI today is like, is all human thought ultimately reducible to this kind of computation that we can encode on an intelligent machine? Or are there ways of thinking that humans do that are non-computable that by, by, um, without, by, even by principle couldn't be encoded in something like this Turing machine? Um, and that's, that's a big question right now. So um, moving on. Um, before I get too far into those weeds, but I just wanted to bring that up. This was a big deal. This was a big uh, advancement during that time. Um, there was a lot of early optimism in AI when, when uh, following in the wake of this landmark conference in the 1956. Lots of funding was poured into it from many agencies like DARPA um, and others, and the early researchers were incredibly optimistic. Um, to say they were overly optim- optimistic is to make a vast understatement so you heard things like in the 50s and 60s statements like oh machines will be capable within 20 years of doing any work a man can do and within a generation the problem of creating artificial intelligence will substantially be solved um marvin minsky once told in an interview to life magazine from three to eight years we will have a machine with the general intelligence of an average human being yeah that didn't turn out. <laughs> um, so, to, so these well, were not just what off the. mark. depends
0: on you think m- about uh, the average human being. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, we got to be careful, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to the, the say these were off the mark as being widely optimistic is they weren't even in the in the same area code. They weren't even the same continent with what was actually happening and what actually ended up. And so, what actually this was not lost on a lot of the, the uh, funding sources. After uh, several years of working really hard to try to realize this dream during the mid 1970s, um, it became obvious that this wasn't going to be as easy as we thought it was. And funding dried up and we entered what what is widely referred to as uh, the first AI winter, where it was hard to get funding. Um, there was a lot of discouragement um, about the fact that we weren't making as much progress as we should have been, et cetera. Um, And some of the reasons for that, there's lots of reasons. I'll just list a few of them. One part of it was um, widely thought, okay, we just didn't have a lot of computational resources, which which is definitely true at that time. There was another problem called the combinatorial explosion problem, which basically boils down to if you have to reason through a lot of decisions as an intelligent agent, um, the more decisions you have to reason through and that overlap each other, it becomes exponentially harder and harder and take longer and longer and more computational and resources to solve that. And that just became in, quickly intractable for any conceivable computer to do, to emulate what human beings did on a daily basis, making decisions with complex, uncertain information. Um, along the same lines was this... Idea of common sense knowledge and reasoning, which humans are really good at, but computers still are really bad at. That was something that really was an intract was a problem that wasn't really envisioned. So it was just a lot of, um, in, I think, if you look at it in retrospect, in hindsight, um, a lot of maybe some impatience, thinking, "Oh, we should be able to do this, and why can't we?" and frustration. So there was some more resurgence of this in the um, 1980s, we had um, some interest renewed with the advent of uh, expert systems. So these were systems, um, as computing power started to increase, we start to be able to uh, increase the memory of systems. And expert systems are essentially these systems that codify a specific um, domain of knowledge, like everything you wanted to ever know about, um, uh, I don't know, uh, copy machines or, or something like that, or everything you want to know about a certain um, way of doing economics um, or building a department store, any number of things like that. And uh, you would program machines that would be able to answer questions about these um, in place of a human. Um, and I'm no expert on this, so I'm probably um, oversimplifying the definition here. But these were initially a lot of excitement about these and like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. This is going to make things a lot more efficient. Um, But then uh, some similar difficulties start arising where some of these expert systems, they couldn't think flexibly enough to answer good um, um, questions, important questions that were asked of them. And even in some cases would give uh, completely nonsensical answers. So funding and interest began to dry up again in the 90s. And then that leads us up to the early part of the 21st century and going on to today where we've experienced another resurgence, um, which is still gaining steam as we speak. We have made lots of advancements in um, AI algorithms. And I'm going to um, stop there because we're gonna be talking about that for pretty much the rest of the, uh, of the program. And I'll turn it back over to you, Charles.
0: All right. So we've uh, covered some historical basics. Let's let's uh, cover some uh, conceptual basics. Uh, so, Todd, uh, when modern-day computer scientists and scholars in related disciplines talk about artificial intelligence, what do they mean? Uh, by what standards do we call a machine intelligent? Um, now, this is going to connect us to uh, the Turing test and. Uh, continuous attempts to pass this test and 2014 organizers of a competition in London claimed that an AI passed this test it was the first time in history that a machine has done so some other people criticized it said no they didn't some others said yes they did so can you tell us about the Turing test and why it's so important to scientists
2: I'm sorry Dave I'm afraid I can't do that (laughs) oh boy We've been talking to Hal 9000 this whole time.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, so the Turing test is a, uh, is a thought experiment uh, conceived of by Alan Turing and published originally in 1950 in a paper entitled Computing, Machinery, and Intelligence um, in a British quarterly philosophical journal called MIND. Uh, it wasn't terribly well known until about 1956 when it was published in an anthology that was more popularly accessible called the world of mathematics Um, and turing's article was in that and importantly i think actually for its popularity was it was renamed can a machine think and i guess the rest is history Uh, and the turing test has been endlessly debated uh, ever since then now Alan Turing may well have been narcissistic enough to call his test the Turing test, um, but he didn't. Uh, in his article, he, he calls his test the imitation game. Um, and the game calls for an interrogator to question uh, some hidden entity, which is either a computer or another human being. And the questioner, based on his or her interactions with this entity, Um, solely on the answers, whether uh, he has to decide whether uh, he had been interrogating a man or a machine. Um, The interrogator can't distinguish computers from humans. Uh, If the interrogator can't uh, distinguish computers from humans any better than he can distinguish, uh, let's say, uh, uh, men from women by the same means, then we have no good reason to deny that the computer that deceived him, if it was a computer, was thinking. Uh, the only way a computer can imitate a human being that successfully Turing implies would would be to actually think like a human being. Um, now it should—it's got to be said that while Turing's thought experiment was simple and uh, powerful, it's got some real problems. For instance, in the paper. Turing doesn't actually argue for the premise that the ability to convince some unspecified number of observers uh, of unspecified qualifications for some unspecified length of time and on an unspecified number of occasions uh, would justify the conclusion that the computer was thinking. He simply asserts that. And we can be convinced of a lot of things that we think are going on, but which are, in fact, simply figments of our own imagination. Um, If a computer can be programmed to be very convincing to an audience of genuine human beings, all we can really say is that the computer is a good imitator and was skillfully programmed. So I think it's really too big an intellectual leap to say that a computer is thinking, um, if it can confuse people as to its own identity. Um, to be fair to Turing, though, I'm, I, let me read something from his paper on this point. He says, the, the original question, can machines think, I believe to be too meaningless to deserve discussion. Nevertheless, I believe that at the end of the century, the, the, the end of the 20th century, uh, the use of words and general educated opinion will have altered so much that one will be able to speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted. Um, so the the provocative renaming of this article I, I think in some ways might have caused some problems um, uh, because it's not entirely cl- clear to me that Turing was thinking of thinking as we might conceive of it. Um, but hmm. to continue, uh, one of the things that Turing argues is that a sign of quote-unquote thinking is not merely ascertaining the meaning of a question and properly giving the answer, but what we might call responsivity um, that that the answer given is attuned to the questioner's way of questioning and responds in a way that perhaps blends summary with interpretation as well as some degree of originality rather than simply being repetitive. Um, Turing's paper presents some kind of silly lines of questioning as examples of conducting this imitation game. And to be honest, it seems to me that the standard of fooling fooling someone into thinking a human being is on the other end of the line, as it were, is not a test of thinking. But the idea is still out there. And, you know, I think think the Turing test idea has morphed a little bit. One possible morphing would would come from a 1980 paper uh, by John Searle, who... Envisions the construction of a computer that behaves as if it understands Chinese. Um, this is called the Chinese Room. Uh, Chinese characters are input to a computer, and according to the program that it's running, it spits out other Chinese characters. Uh, suppose then that this computer performs its tasks so well that it comfortably passes the Turing test. So it confuses. It convinces i guess and confuses uh a a human chinese speaker that the program itself is a live chinese speaker on the other end of the line to all the questions that that person asks it makes appropriate responses so that any chinese speaker would be convinced that they are talking to another chinese-speaking human being the important question here is whether it's fair to say that the computer understands chinese which would be an example of what we might call strong ai versus simulating the understanding of Chinese, which would be uh, deemed weak AI. Um, in Searle's argument, the next step is really, really important. He then supposes that he is in a closed room and has a book with, the, with an English version of the computer program, along with enough pencils and papers and whatever, uh, to be able to do the work of taking the Chinese characters that he gets through a slot in the door and process them according to the program's instructions, um, and then produce Chinese characters as output. Uh, if the computer had passed a Turing test, uh, a, a Chinese room Turing test this way, then it follows that uh, you know, Searle argues that he would also pass the Turing test simply by following the computer, you know, the, the computational method that was presented to him. Uh, to do with the characters what uh, what he did. Now, what's interesting about this is there's no real difference between the two cases, right? Each entity is following the instructions of some programming and producing behavior that may be interpreted by the outside listener as intelligent conversation. But the intermediary doesn't need to understand Chinese at all for this to work. So the, the computer wouldn't either. If Searle, sitting in this room, doing following the instructions of the programming, can confuse the outside entity without knowing a lick of Chinese, um, there's no reason to believe that the computer really understands either. And so I don't know. I think I think this is an interesting twist on Turing's test, and kind of puts it <laughs> maybe puts it to rest. Um, you know, what do you think, Charles?
0: Well, um, I, I, normally when we talk about artificial intelligence, uh, most of most of what we're concerned about is the strong AI position that you're talking about. Correct. Um, mm-hmm. and, which is the question of whether or not a machine can possess uh, consciousness and subjectivity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that creates a big problem because um, we haven't really been able to figure out. Um, a way to empirically demonstrate that we uh have consciousness and subjectivity mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. i mean i from from my own perspective i have i have access and awareness of exactly one mind and they call this the problem of other minds mm-hmm. uh, that's my own i know that i'm thinking because i'm well yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know that i'm thinking because i'm thinking and if you and I sit, sit down for coffee, um, we can carry on a conversation and I you know, I, I look at what your uh, facial reactions are when I say things and I hear the words that are coming out of your mouth. Uh, and because I have a properly functioning right temporoparietal junction in my brain, uh, I infer that you are having thoughts and you are having emotions uh, and you have some sort of internal mental state. But I can't... Uh, scientifically prove that you do this. There, there is this, uh, so far anyway, uh, insurmountable explanatory mm. gap uh, when it comes to the connections between observable phenomena and uh, subjective consciousness. So I think one of the advantages of something like the Turing test is uh, that uh, it, it sort of recognizes that in 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 a way, we are asking an impossible question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are trying to yeah. prove that a machine possesses something that we cannot prove that a human possesses.
2: Yeah,
1: right. And that's and that's the point of the quote that I brought in, right? Uh, because he says this may be a meaningless question. Yeah. Um, and I think Searle, you know, Searle's uh, Chinese Room, I think is helpful in in understanding that as well. Um, the best we can do is that test. Mm-hmm. Is that the way you would read it? Right. Yep.
2: Yeah, I think I think that is um, as so long as we are aware of this issue, which a lot of folks um, at least seem to forget this issue when they're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as we are aware of it, I think it's useful to ask these sort of questions and you know put things to the test and um, computers to the test to you know. And uh, to see, okay, at least if they're um, emulating the thinking of a human, whether or not we can, imbu- whether we not, we can infer subjective uh, conscious awareness behind that is something like you said. We we can't really even prove with humans. We just um, we just assume that other humans do for other mm. reasons. Um, and then you have to ask the question, okay, am I just going to give the benefit of the doubt to the computer? Say I have a computer <laughs> that passes the, the Turing test uh, and it passes it, um, you know, an, any number of times in any generic kind of conversation, um, then you might start to wonder, well, maybe I should be giving it the benefit of the doubt, you know, mm. that it, and just like I do m- uh, my fellow humans. Um, and that's another, that's another issue entirely, but mm-hmm. at the very least... Um, I think this is a useful way of framing, you know, at the very least, what level we're willing to accept that something that at least emulates or simulates human thinking is happening. Mm-hmm. And then the, 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 the question of whether that's actually a conscious, aware, subjective is all that is, is something that is not decidable. At least uh, we haven't been able to figure out a way to dis- to decide that yet, so I'm, yeah. a, I'm with you guys on that. I, yeah, I, 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 think,
1: yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting question to ask. What really constitutes thinking or conscious thought, or yeah, or we even happened. had
2: an episode on this, listen, yeah. in the past,
1: <laughs> right, I we'll, right. Yep. Um, I mean, it seems to me that it has to go beyond programmed responses or even sensible, logical responses, right, to being yeah. creative in some way. Um, very much like a scientific theory in order for it to really pass the test of being a good theory needs to predict further phenomena that go beyond the original scope of the theory itself right right so uh, a, a sentient being um would have to be able to compose ideas that go beyond what it was fed Right, if you will, right, or even beyond an algorithmic response, as it were.
2: So it's not as it's not just good enough to have a vast database of responses that it can cobble together for any given thing. It has to be able to improvise off those. Of course, at some point you get into um, even difficulties with that because you can conceive of 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 a computer that has such a vast array, a mind-boggling array of responses or pieces of responses that it can draw from that it's it will even fake the concept uh, idea of what that you're talking about of improvising and creativity Mm -hmm. um and so things get really muddy uh, when you really start digging into this uh but yeah (laughs) yeah
0: yeah uh yeah this is this gets us into some really complicated stuff so yeah let's like i said we're doing we're we're kind of hitting some basics so we'll go ahead and move on uh so uh so uh hey siri uh i mean hey dan uh let's talk applications what are some ways in which we already have learning machines doing close, intelligent stuff for us
2: composite index went up just a bit to fifteen thousand one hundred fifty eight point
0: eight two that's 13.94 higher or 0.09 percent Stop it. Stop. Siri, I didn't ask that.
2: But you did say, hey, Siri.
0: I did. I shouldn't have had my phone in the room. Are going to keep that in the episode? Oh, boy.
2: We have to. I mean, it's classic.
0: Yes, we're not. See, the machines are rising up even now.
2: Well, at least they're they're mainly focused on stock markets right now. So apparently, <laughs> yes. so I think we're we're good, we're good for a while, right? Things. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. To uh, uh, well, you just demonstrated an example of what we have of of, of uh, example of learning machines doing well, at least sometimes intelligent stuff for us. Um, so, Siri is a good example. Um, Alexa, these are basically these um, cloud-based um, databases with a um, um, AI layer on top of them that you can literally ask questions for and they will provide you information there. Um, and the a, p- big part of the AI um, that's on, that's, or should, I, I should say, the AI component, a big part of the AI component of these systems. Is the speech recognition uh, of of human beings? So this actually this actually gets into um, a, a a question you guys were talking about strong versus weak AI, um, and it, these are all, not always well distinguished when we're when we're talking about it. So if we we can consider stuff like speech recognition as being at least at the very least weak AI, okay, and that would be uh, intelli- um, being able to do something or simulate human-level um, intellect um, for a specific domain, in this case, speech recognition, and being able to uh, retrieve a response from memory, in this case, series retrieving response from the database um, on stock markets, and answering with speech synthesis. So um, those are all things that humans do and do well. Um, and so at least in that level, that can be, um, easily considered to be artificial intelligence, at least in the weak sense of the word. Um, and that would be without any regard for any need for, or even any need for a, um, uh, subjective conscious awareness behind that. So, um, but there's a lot of other, and actually this, uh, oh golly, I can really go on on this, um. Let me just hold that off for a minute. I'll talk about some of these current, other current applications. Um, so other examples um, are the huge explosion in recent years of so-called machine learning algorithms, or deep learning. Sometimes you'll hear uh, uh, fra- that phrase. Um, unless you've been living under a rock, you probably at least have heard that phrase machine learning in some kind of context um, in recent years. So examples of this would be things like Google Image Search, you type in a, um, a query, search for images, and it pulls up images that are related to that query. Like you want to find a bunch of pictures of dogs. Um, it will pull up a bunch of images of dogs and and con- dog context, dog accessories, etc. Um, sometimes it gets stuff wrong and gives you something that has absolutely nothing to do with dogs. It's not perfect, but they're getting a lot better than they used to be. Um, other examples would be things like the recent... Um, sp- uh, a rash of uh, computer programs that are built to, to play um, games like chess and Go um, and beating grand grandmasters um, handily with one um, bank of processors tied behind their back <laughs> in some cases. Um, uh, for example, AlphaGo made news recently for um, beating, uh, not just beating, but completely wiping the floor with... The, the, what is essentially the 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 human master, the, the the best Go player that we could find in the entire planet. Well, and more um, than that, um, yeah,
1: you know, a winning streak of several hundred games against against uh, the top level professionals across Asia.
2: Right. Yeah. That's yes. Not good just point.
1: one. You know, not just one little series against mm. one particular individual, but has never and, lost.
2: Right, and to make things even uh, scarier. Um, uh, they upgraded and made a new version of AlphaGo recently. I forget mm-hmm. what it was called now, um, but that played its older version. Not only did it um, beat it, but it took something like 25 minutes to fig- to learn how to um, play the game and beat its predecessor, which took a lot more training time. So the, the algorithms to do this I may be exaggerating a little bit, but it didn't take very much. It took a fraction of the time to um, learn how to um, not only get to the level of prowess, but well surpass its predecessor's level prowess um, with almost no time in comparison. And that's a testament to um, improvement of these machine learning algorithms. So um, I should explain what machine learning is. I mean, it's... the simplest definition is right in the name. It's essentially machines learning how to do stuff, right? So it broadly refers to any algorithmic system, computer program or what have you, that learns from experience with data that 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 are input into the system. So they can this this is just a huge, very broad um, widely um, applicable um, concepts, they can, these kind of algorithms can be applied to find uh, patterns in data. Interestingly enough, um, there's different classes of, the, of these kind of algorithms. One would be finding patterns in data that we already know are there. For example, um, looking at a bunch of pictures and picking out birds in those pictures. So you would train one of these algorithms, give it a training data set that has a bunch of birds in it. And it would figure out through its um, um, algorithmic learning process, um, which involves uh, things like artificial neural networks and a whole bunch of um, classification trees and a whole bunch of stuff. There's like a huge word salad of these algorithms out there. Again, we can put some links in the show notes. But using one of these uh, statistical techniques, it figures out how to find birds in that training data set. And then you unleash it on a you know, other real-world images that um, were not part of the training set and see how well it does in figuring out where the birds are in those or if, in fact, there are any birds in them. Um, So that's one one class of problems. Um, And this is something that, you know, you can arguably say, you know, is at least some component of intelligence, whether it's human or even animal intelligence, is to be able to identify um, objects of a certain category um, inside um, a, a visual field that contains lots of other stuff that is irrelevant, okay? So um, machines are getting pretty good at that. Even in the past five years, I've seen how much improvement there has been in these, in these algorithms. Uh, the other c- side of this is, okay, what about finding patterns and things in data that are, um, that we don't already know are there? So this would be, so the former was called supervised learning. Um, this, what I'm talking about now, is uh, often referred to as unsupervised learning, where you actually, you're trying to do, this is actually very used in, in a lot of scientific research, with uh, these huge data sets that we get from different uh, disciplines of science, trying to figure out what are we going to do with these data? they so complex, there's so much there. How can we figure out what is important in the data to understand, um, to advance uh, scientific understanding and what isn't, what's just noise or irrelevant. Um, so unsupervised machine learning algorithms are designed to do that. And some of the stuff they can do is, is uncannily uh, interesting. And that they can actually, another thing you can do is say, okay, we humans have already found these particular patterns. Now we're going to see if we can machine algorithm that we don't give it the training data of those patterns. We just see if it can find those patterns that we know are important. And sure enough, in a lot of cases, it can. And it it just, it's, I'll give you an example from my own field of meteorology. Um, So um, I have a colleague who was working on, um, he had this balloon-borne imaging probe that he would send up into thunderstorms with a camera, video camera that would take, it was running at, uh, I want to say, 30 frames per second as it was going up into the storm and it would, um, take um, frames of uh, precipitation particles flying through the, the frame of the camera, okay? And these could be raindrops, it could be uh, ice crystals, snowflakes, um, small hail particles, etc. cetera. Um, he programmed a machine learning algorithm without um, just telling it that, okay, I want you to find and four different categories. Not going to tell you what they are. Well, um, just find four different types of you know particles and classify each of these each particle you see in these images into one and it was able to easily differentiate between these different precipitation particles without um, any guidance of what it should be looking for so that's an example Um, there are plenty of others out there um uh, again i i know uh, mostly from meteorology's perspective in fact there's an entire uh, conference um, devoted uh, um, to applications machine learning algorithms mm-hmm. to meteorology. so things for for example, finding um, picking out uh, rotating thunderstorms in radar output or radar data or in model outputs um, such and or f- or identifying where frontal boundaries are, things like that, mm-hmm. um, or even using even trying to improve the prediction of these of the models. Which historically have been based on theoretical understanding, of like fluid mechanics. Even trying to just drive some of these forecasts from purely data-driven regressions onto patterns in the data, which again boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. So there, there's all kinds of stuff going on here right now. Um, self-driving cars are another example. Those are those are becoming. Uh, it's happening folks i mean (laughs) i i i i i'm i remain part of me is just so skeptical that this is going to happen and 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 or that something's going to come along that's just going to make it intractable but but i've seen that the advances that have been made it's just amazing um and, uh, of course, that brings up a whole host of ethical problems, but we, I don't know if we want to get into that or not. Well, I, think, uh, I think we are going yeah, into that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's true. We are. But so, uh, and even here at my own university, Purdue University, there's a huge push right now for the broader a- discipline of data science, big mm-hmm. data. And one of the primary tools for, for um, going through um, and dealing with big data, so to speak, is um, AI algorithms. Like machine learning type algorithms and other related um, artificial intelligence applications. So um, I just wanted to really quick take a quick segue because I think it's interesting is that we were talking before about how we can decide what is what is artificial intelligence and what isn't, what's strong AI, what's weak AI. There's been so much advancement now, and what you could argue is just calling it weak AI for the sake of argument, that um, that likes we don't even even think about it anymore right it, it, a lot mm-hmm. of times it's like oh well yeah computers do that great but twenty years ago or ten years ago even five years ago in some cases that would have been something like wow you can do that mm-hmm. so this is something called um, the so-called ai effect mm-hmm. where you start b- dismissing some of these behaviors of computers as not really real intelligence not really thinking but just computation because they're so commonplace now and and it's led to some researchers in the field kind of joking that, you know, this AI is just simply anything that has not been done yet, you know. We keep pushing <laughs> the, the field forward such that once we've solved a problem that was before a big AI problem, oh, well, now it's not really AI anymore. We've got to get to the next big thing, you know. And anyway, I, hmm. that's, I just wanted to bring that up. I think that, that that's a telling of how much advancement we've been having just in the past decade or so. It Anybody is, want to add it's anything? Pretty, to
1: it? It's pretty remarkable. I mean, just thinking about in, in my own lifetime, which is a little longer than yours, um, you know, when I was an undergrad, um, we had a central computing system that students could go into the computer lab and use to, you know, to write papers. Um, you didn't have them typically. I mean, some people had them in their rooms. And by the time I was a senior, you know, we had, uh, you know, Apple computers or whatever. And, you know, I had a Mac. But, you know, the, the the sort of big scale computing on campus was housed locally in one in one place. Mm-hmm. The physics department used it. The computer science folks used it. The mathematicians did. Um, and you never, you know, we had... Uh, something uh, akin to email, um, but, you know, no web yet until after I graduated 1994, um, you know, is three years after I graduated as an undergrad. Um, just I mean, that's such a blink in, uh, of the eye in human history, certainly, you know, but even thinking about it, you know, what is it? Twenty? It's 25 years, right? Twenty-five years, and 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 we are so far beyond <clears throat> what you would even have ever imagined um, in the '90s, and certainly, who would have imagined this in the in the '50s when when we have the first, you know, explosion of of, of sci-fi that really uses the robot idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just it's stunning how fast yeah. it has advanced.
2: It's it's interesting because in some ways. Yeah, like you said, we we haven't, um, we couldn't anticipate some of this um, the the applications that we've been seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other ways, as 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 we as I mentioned back when we were talking about the history of AI, mm-hmm. there was this wild wild over optimism mm-hmm. about um, sort of the what we would consider the generic strong AI um, concept that that we would, for example, HAL nine thousand great example, right? Um, uh, yep. Uh, Fifty years old today. Yeah, well, not today, and, but this year. Uh, so there was a, and this was obviously a fictional um, artificial intelligence um, in the in the Arthur C. Clarke's um, novel Two Thousand One: Space Odyssey, and also um, iconically represented by the glowing red eye uh, in the uh, the movie uh, adaptation. And uh, and there was a not. This wasn't just a fictional. Th- um, um idea, but there was a lot of researchers in AI and in other areas of science that that honestly believed that we would have something like that by two thousand and one, and we didn't mm-hmm. and so we i think I think we may have mentioned talked about this before in this podcast is that humans seem to be really not very good at predicting advancements in science mm-hmm. and technology um, what we end, what we predict doesn't end up happening like strong ai generic ai and um uh flying cars and you know stuff like that um but we get something else that's you know arguably in its own way equally dramatic or more so that um we didn't anticipate so i think there's a both a there's a tension here between not being able to see um, being amazed by some of the advances around us and also, I don't know if you want to call it being disappointed with mm. that the some of the heady sort of pie in the sky views of the mid twentieth century of mm. of where robots would be and, and AI would be as far as matching human intelligence in its in the general sense. Is that?
1: Yeah. No. Um, that makes. I mean, if you think about. So I'm, I. I mean, we're getting <clears throat> off track here. But what else is new? Um, <laughs> You know, if you think about the time in which Clark is writing and the time in which, um, uh, you know, the, the, that particular story, and there are other stories like it um, with, you know, robotic explorers in space and whatever, you know, this is a time when the, the, our capabilities of astronautics have are completely revolutionized, right? I mean, the, the, you know, late 50s, early 60s is incredible uh, yeah. in terms of the pace of development. And, right. you know, at that time, I, I believe this is before my time. Uh, at this time, I, I am certain that we thought that, the, you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, we're just going to keep at this pace. Sure. And if we had kept at the pace that led up to the moon landing, by, you bet by 2000, we would have had this kind of thing. We would have been going out to Jupiter for sure.
2: That's a very good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, But, you know, lots of, you know, contingencies of history Mm -hmm. um, came in to to, um, sort of swat that um, optimistic view down. But I I do think you're probably right, at least in in as much as being able to have these uh, missions to, Mm -hmm. like Jupiter and stuff like that, certainly could have taken place. Yeah, well, I uh, mean, if you yeah, if, no if you think that.
1: about you know Sputnik to Apollo, yeah, uh, to Apollo thirteen is is eleven years, yep, or twelve years or whatever it is, you know. So um, the pace of development there is huge, mm-hmm. and it, all you've got to do is linearly extrapolate, and you you got two thousand one,
2: right?
0: Yeah, when uh, Asimov published uh, I Robot in nineteen fifty. He, I don't have the exact date uh, right in front of me, but I do know that uh, the stories in iRobot are set in the 21st century uh, when the the narrator is, is a robot psychologist who travels to all these outposts and mining colonies mm. and space stations and things like that uh, to have face-to-face conversations with sentient robots. Mm. So, yeah... Face-to-face, face. yeah. Face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Face. Well, we, we built faces so we could have face-to-face yeah, face uh, discussions.
1: All right.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, um, yeah, looking at the time, uh, we'll um, move on a little bit. <coughs> so it is my turn, and, uh, yeah, I'm going to pick this up with uh, some ethical Uh, considerations and there there are a ton of them well again i I guess the recurring theme for this episode is there's too much to talk about Um, i mean if if we do create a generic strong ai what moral obligations do we have to that thing uh when do we apply the term person with all that that entails Mm -hmm. Um, now i'm going to kind of go from the other direction and there is an asimov connection so there's it works um i'm going to talk about the question of programming morality into machines can we program a machine to be moral uh and if so how <clears throat> so uh for my specific uh topic i'm going to narrow this down even further uh, i'm just, let's talk about ai on the battlefield now we already have automatic weapons systems such as the phalanx ship defense system uh, once activated it fires autonomously uh, we've got the predator drone which is remote con- remotely controlled uh, samsung produces a security guard robot that comes with optional shotgun uh, now in 2007 the u.s department of defense issued a 25-year plan for increased use of unmanned systems in combat kind of pushing back against that in july of this year Representatives from 150 tech companies signed an agreement not to produce killer robots. Nevertheless, we face the possibility that we could soon see robots in one form or another actively engaged in battle, targeting and killing human combatants. And this by itself creates ethical debate. Should we roll out autonomous battlefield robots with lethal capacities, or should there always be a human mind there making the kill-no-kill decision? Now, if we do go ahead with autonomous battlefield robots, um, who's responsible for any war crimes that they commit? And how do we stop them from committing war crimes? So that's the question I'm going to talk about for a minute here. Um, How do we program moral judgment and behavior into an AI? Now, Ronald Arkin, uh, a computer science professor at Georgia Tech, uh, he argues that it is, in fact, easier to make robots avoid war crimes than humans, since the variables that influence human decisions to engage in war crimes are not present. And this is an idea. That that idea goes all the way back to Aquinas, uh, who blames human factors such as uh, the thirst for vengeance and the lust for power for wartime atrocities. Uh, Modern psychological researchers point to factors such as uh, confusion over orders, outgroup bias, frustration, stress reactions, um, and so on. And AIs don't do these things. AIs don't feel frustrated. Uh, they don't, uh, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't have stress. Uh, now Arkin argues that it would be fairly straightforward to program in a set of stimulus-response rules for robot behavior, uh, forbidding some behaviors in the presence of certain stimuli and requiring other behaviors in the presence of other stimuli. It's just a matter of getting the programming right. Uh, and computer scientists Constantine uh, Arkotis and uh, Selmer Bringsyard at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute over in New York, uh, they claim that we could develop a complete deontic logic system for robots. Uh, They say uh, deontology, so that's rule-based ethics, uh, can be represented in computer language, including formal proofs for the implementation of general principles in specific situations, uh, classifying behaviors as obligatory, permissible, forbidden. Uh, And, of course, this idea of programming moral rules is not new uh, as you know I, I brought up Isaac Asimov, uh, the idea of programming his you know his three rules uh, to make sure that uh, robots don't get out of control and destroy us all. Uh, but we do have some problems here uh, outside of uh, the Asimov connection. One of the biggest problems is that we are assuming if we're going to program morality into robots, we are assuming that morality, is deontological. Uh, So this assumption is grounded in enlightenment philosophy, especially the work of Immanuel Kant. Uh, If we want to know the right thing to do, we just need to apply the correct rule, uh, without considerations for situational specifics, character outcome, or things like that. Um, But this approach to moral philosophy has been assaulted on all sides for quite a long time now, uh, especially by theorists who argue that the real core of morality uh, is not rule-based rational analysis, but uh, moral emotions. And we don't know how to program guilt or sympathy or anything like that into AIs. Uh, And, of course, we also have the virtue ethicists. Who say that uh, the core of morality is not about uh, mindlessly following rules or calculating uh, outcomes, but about being a particular kind of person—wise, just, courageous, loving. Well, that's more stuff that we don't know how to represent in programming language. Uh, so, well, last bit, uh, and then we'll you know keep moving on. Uh, so, I'm, I mentioned the question of who to blame when robots do something unethical. Uh, and Robert Sparrow, a philosophy professor at Monash University, has talked, uh, talked about that. And, uh, Sparrow claims that um, the biggest problem is that if a robot commits a war crime, nobody is really to blame. Uh, the designers didn't do it. The programmers didn't do it. They're not to blame. Uh, the commanding officer who ordered the system's use Is not to blame for the specific action, Uh, and since it's just you know since uh, it lacks moral agency and responsibility, the machine itself is not responsible. So, in Sparrow's uh, view, this makes any use of killer robots morally unacceptable, uh, no matter what programming we put into them. Hmm. So, yeah, so. Mm -hmm. Can we program machines to be good or do they just, you know, run their programs?
1: Well, that, I mean, that, that gets us to the question, you know, because if we are thinking about this as hardware that, that obeys a program that is installed on it, um, there is no such thing, right, as computer rule-breaking. You know, it's going to do what it's programmed to do. Mm-hmm. So in order to get to the point where you might break rules that you might impose, it has to already have crossed that threshold, right, of intelligence, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, this This gets to the whole, I mean, this opens up the whole can of worms about... Um, whether we are ultimately responsible for our actions you know, I mean this is the same, it's the same kind of question about whether, um, how do we determine whether um, you know AI or or machines are consciously aware and have subjective experiences that we were talking about earlier, I think this is a parallel problem, I mean like like we said we can't prove that humans have that and in the same way there's the, uh, and we've touched on this before in this and this podcast is that there's a question of, you know, if we don't have this, you know, free choice that is, you know, you know, I don't want to go into all of that again, but um, I think you know where I'm going here. It's just like how, uh, to what extent, in what sense are we responsible for our actions morally or otherwise? And if we have a hard time identifying that, I think all of us agree on this podcast that we are indeed responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, for our moral, moral actions, but the question isn't you know, if we are or not, but and to what extent and how do we determine that and if we can't, we have a hard time understanding amongst ourselves what that looks like, how can we come up with a way of determining whether a, a robot, an intelligent robot even if we agree that it that is exhibiting um, artificial intelligence, whether it's responsible or not. So it's just it, it, this is all wrapped up together. I think it's it's <laughs> there's no. I mean, yeah. I think you know what I'm what I'm saying. Hopefully, <laughs>
1: it's a big fat hairy deal. Is what it is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it right. Is.
2: Uh, yeah.
0: Well, and it extends. I mean, you know, well beyond battlefield robotics. I mean, um, then when you were talking about uh, expert systems, uh, the the expert system. Uh, research that uh, I have any familiarity with is um, the attempts that were made to uh, create uh, medical diagnosis expert systems. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but can we hold the AI responsible for a misdiagnosis? Um, you know, you can you sue a machine for malpractice, and if it's an AI hmm. and it's uh, not you know, uh, if this is a, a learning machine, so it's producing outcomes, um, you know, the beyond the initial state that it was programmed into, can you know, can you sue the programmer for malpractice? You know yeah, it uh, it gets it gets thorny really fast. Okay, um, move, moving on a bit. yeah, so yeah, this it's complicated. So, uh, Todd, you get the last issue. Uh, what about a Christian perspective on AI? Uh, does the attempt to create artificial minds carry with it theological implications?
1: So I, I think it's amusing that this is the last question because it's a, it's a Pandora's box of epic proportions, right? You know that, Charles.
0: <laughs> yes, I did. Uh,
1: yeah, so it's 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 good that you say a christian perspective because there definitely isn't just one um you know you've certainly got some who definitely argue that ai is our present ages tower of babel getting too high and too mighty for our own good um and on the other hand, there are others that certainly argue that it is within our rights as creative image bearers of God to create things which have positive benefits and potential. And certainly AI in its broadest sense has great, great potential for good. Um, so I, I guess one of the things that comes to mind as I think about this question of of, of how Christianly to think about this Um a Christian worldview recognizes the um, the ontological reality of creation um, and the value of physical reality. Um, the Word made flesh is 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 Jesus Christ, right? Um, who in his incarnation reveals the value that God puts in physical reality and humanity. Um, in the book of revelation uh we have the new heavens and new earth That's not we're not going to be disembodied spirits floating in the ether but um the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is what is, is what the christian church looks to um, so a christian perspective has to account for that reality um, as well as that uh, which extends beyond that physical reality to include the spiritual realm. Um, so with that ontological starting point, uh, you're gonna reject the reductionist tendency that humans are just simply complex biomechanical machines, um, while at the same time still affirming the value of the physical world. So supposing we were able to create beings that not only passed the Turing test Um, but actually seem genuinely to be thinking. Um, One of the biggest things to me that it it seems to me that that we have to recognize is that even if we're able to create intelligent, in quotes, intelligent machines, we're not able to give it a soul. Um, Regardless of how much we might be able to do, we can't make something that is, in fact, the image of God. Um, So there could be something that is in every way, every observable way, um, human-like, but not human, because the definition of humanity is is, is, involves both body and soul. And the soul is an immaterial part of who we are. Um, There are some who probably argue that we are in fact mechanisms. Well, I know there are uh, many who, who argue, there are some Christians who perhaps hold to a mechanistic view, Um, And that whatever there is that is in our biology uh, that is reproducible, and I think it's almost certainly true that given sufficient time and resources and study, we'll probably be able to replicate just about everything biological and biomechanical about human beings if we want to. Um, Such mechanistic thinking, folks, might very well argue that the soul itself is mechanism, is somehow contained in the biological. Um, and so that if we actually do create copies of human beings, then they will have souls. Now, I think there's massive problems with that point of view. But I, you know, if one believes that the the, the human is simply neurons and 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 everything uh, that encases in, in, in the neurons, um, then then yeah we we'd have a dilemma uh, uh if if in fact there is there are soul bearing beings that we have made um mm-hmm. you know but i but you know i i do not believe that it's justifiable to hold that the human being is purely biomechanical electrical uh, signals and and physical matter um and so you know i would i would i would tend to to side with the point that I that I'd previously made that even if we could reproduce everything on the physical level, we still aren't making we aren't making things that we would call human. We aren't making things that are going to present those those uh, those theological problems. Hmm. Um, but I think it's it's worth it's worth thinking about. You know, it's inter- it, Go ahead, Dan.
2: No, no, I'm I'm go ahead. I. I <laughs> I, I I wanna he, I wanna hear you finish your thought. I did well, have something no, I wanted so, to bring up. Yeah,
1: so I, I'm I'm thinking, you know, one of the things that's really kind of interesting in recent one of the current threads in in in, in research, um, into the mind is that there um, at least some are arguing that there is no self there. There's no you. Um that it, mm-hmm. in some sense is a, a, a some kind of illusion. Uh, illusion of uh, that emerges out of this mess of neurons that we are.
2: Well, who is it that's being fooled then? <laughs> that's the that's the question I always ask to folks to hold to that. It,
1: exactly, exactly. But um, you know, it's interesting that there are you know there are researchers out there who are approaching things from this perspective. Um, which is the logical extension, right of of their mechanistic view of human reality. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I've got a host of other issues that arise out of AI that are that have the Christian flavor. We could talk about, you know, things like the ethics of work, um, you know, what happens if uh, artificial intelligences and other robotic mechanisms, Um, take over some large sector of the economy you know there are ethical issues that certainly would would um there'd be a christian perspective that one could offer on those things um there's the issue of course of of even self-driving cars um that you know uh, one of the things self-driving cars have to do or may have to do is decide who to crash into um And, and yeah, we could go on and on and on about those things, but I want to let what I've got uh, uh, out there percolate a little bit with you guys. What do you think?
2: Yeah. So one one thing that struck me when you were talking about, um, you know, whether or not if we were to somehow be able to create some um, uh, at least mechanistically um, uh, equivalent um, mind um, to a human, whether or not. Such a thing would have a soul in the sense that we tend to think about it in in the traditional Christian sense, and I don't claim to know. You know, um, I certainly um, tend to fall on the side of those who would say that there's an immaterial aspect of things uh, to our to our um, selves in addition to the material, and that there's no reason to suspect that we could be able to if we were to create all the mechanistic parts. Um, include you know the um, the brain and all the way and emulate the way the brain works and get you know strong AI so to speak mm-hmm. um, that 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 would also then um, then uh, mean that it also would have a soul and you know bear be an image bear or whatever um, I, from you know, my knee jerk reaction is to say yeah I, I don't see why um, that it would but then when I think about it a little bit more mm-hmm. um, I think about uh, the, you know, this sort of concept of, of humans participating, um, in, uh, uh, creation intending the creation. And, um, I, 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 wonder, I, 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 I don't know, um, you know, even if you take, as, and like you said, there are Christians who, who, who do have, um, mech, uh, mechanistic models for, for mm-hmm. human beings. But even if you, t- um, don't take that position and you say oh yeah there's definitely an immaterial part i don't kn- there's still we still don't know what that looks like and whether that's something that 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 is so embedded within the physical reality that if you were to create something like a human on the level of complexity that it wouldn't also have this immaterial part soulish part mm-hmm. along for the ride you know uh, mm-hmm. we don't know and so one thing that that um that makes me think about this is it's like okay s- and given that we were able to do this, um, should we, as believers, as Christians, give the the benefit of the doubt that this is an intelligent um, being that we should treat with the same amount of respect that we would treat a fellow human being, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what we ontologically think is probably the going on, mm-hmm. you know, and. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I, I think I would be uncomfortable, let's put it this way, I would be uncomfortable with dismissing soulish, um, uh, uh, dismissing um, or uh, devaluing the idea that this being has a soul um, if it's behaving and acting in, in a way that for all intents and purposes is human. Um, I would be uncomfortable saying, well, you were created by us, and we, you know, uh, you're, you're not really, you don't really have a soul, and I, so I'm going to treat you like you don't. Mm-hmm. I would be very uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not just, to my mind, a question of the ontological status of mm-hmm. these um, beings, assuming that we were able to create them, um, but also epistemological and and basically how we live as um, ambassadors of of Christ in this world we would we be, should we be willing to extend that to them and mm-hmm. uh, so that's a tough one I, oh, I like I said I inc- would feel like I would add, I would fall mm-hmm. on the side of of, of, of of extending that to them you know mm-hmm. um, because I can conceive of, of, of God saying well okay here's a here's a analogy from literature Okay, you, if you've uh, you all read the Silmarillion, right? Mm-hmm.
1: The Silmarillion, um, as uh, yeah. Michael Farmer likes so to call it. So there's
2: a there's a really interesting scene in there. Okay, this was the, the yeah the um so this if readers most of you reader or readers good, good <laughs> uh, listeners should know about the Silmarillion is one of J.R.R. Tolkien's works that um, tells the history of his um, um, of Middle Earth and. Uh, the world that of course is the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and all that are in and in that history you, they, he talks about the original creation of the Dwarves um, so what's what's interesting is that in in, in Tolkien's mythology um, there is a creator God um, but this creator God has delegated creative activities to what what loosely, you know, analogous to uh, archangels or or demigods, or um, that are his agents that are that are divine in some sense, but but still created. But they are given the job of creating. One of these is um, I forget uh, Olwe or something. Um, he has he wants to please um, uh, Eru, which is the uh, the one god figure, and by also c- by creating. A race of beings, namely the dwarves, and, and so he does that, but the first dwarf that he makes is inanimate, it just doesn't do anything, um, and then suddenly um, Eru shows up and says, what have you been doing, you know, I, I you, you're too early, I had a plan here, I was going to create um, the elves and humanity in my own due time, um, and you've kind of jumped the gun, and you didn't know what you were doing because you, you didn't have, you know, my, all my full essence and plan. And so of course, um, always, um, if I'm getting the name right, uh, somebody please correct me, um, uh, is, is like contrite and says, look, I just was trying to, you know, follow after your creative spirit here. This was, this was what, like a child, um, to, you know, creating something that he wants to show his, his his father um, and say, aren't you proud of me? You know? And of course he was like, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, get that there was no malice and he actually imbues this dwarf with, with a soul and and a mind. And then that's the beginning of the dwarfs. And um, so I thought I was thinking about that when you were talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. this It's like, you know, obviously this is a story, right? But it gives us ways to think about these things, I think. And who knows if something like that might, happen you know I don't know this is total speculation but <laughs> it's something to think about we certainly shouldn't have the hubris to think that we can create beings in our image in the same way that God created us in his image but we also shouldn't um, uh, short change the concept that God himself could um, imbue these beings with the same kind of uh, uh, image by virtue of us participating in that creative process mm-hmm. i don't know the answer but these are big questions that we're going to have to grapple with as we move forward no, <laughs> with no doubt. this technology so hmm. just some thoughts there
0: yeah right yeah and there are uh christian thinkers uh people like nancy murphy and warren brown who hold to what they call a non reductionist non-reductionist physicalism
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um
0: so yeah if I mean, I've I've read some of their stuff. I'm not a hundred percent convinced. I'm convinced enough that I'm not going to you know kick them out of the club or anything like that. Sure. Uh, but it, it's it's a live option. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea that the soul, rather than some sort of platonic uh, second substance, mm-hmm. is a supervenient category or an emergent property or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Dan, when you were talking uh, about you know, not wanting to make that move of denying the soulishness of an apparently soulish uh, construct. Yeah, you said it better uh, than I did. Yeah. <laughs> where, where my brain went was the uh, Enlightenment-era vivisectionists. Hmm. Uh, they were convinced by their philosophy... Uh, that animals could not oh, feel yeah. pain
2: I didn't even thought of this angle uh, mm-hmm.
0: and so because of that they figure well my, my theory you know my theory can't possibly be wrong uh, so I know that animals can't feel pain and so they would go ahead and do vivisections uh, without anesthesia mm-hmm. and if anybody you know brought up the obvious you know, fact that this dog is yelping in pain as you're doing stuff they would say oh no that's not real pain that's not real yelping it's just it's just a noise emitted like the the squeaking of a wheel or, a <laughs> yeah. or something like that Oh yeah. man. so yeah you, i think you that's you an excellent point analogy that, yeah um if if we've got a really good philosophical or theological theory that says there's no possible way that this robot could uh, be I don't know, be soulish, mm-hmm. um, but it sure looks soulish. Maybe we should err on the side of you know, not uh, of uh, treating it as if it is soulish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think it would be a. It, it definitely is a human reaction. I, I, I would I would wholeheartedly expect that if there were. AIs which demonstrated what seemed to be, as we're calling it, I guess, soulish capabilities, that we would naturally gravitate toward um, regarding it in in that in, you know in an appropriate manner. I mean, I, mm-hmm. all I have to do to go, all I have to do to get there, is to look at. Um, you know, we should post the, this this video on, on on the show notes as well. Um, you know, Boston Dynamics is this company that makes these um, walking robots, right? Um, there's there's a oh yeah,
0: big dog freaks me yeah, out. Yeah, I know,
1: I know. Well, there's there's a video where there's um, somebody who you know, one of these four legged dogs is prancing along in the parking lot, and he kicks him. And the, you know, the dog goes and, and skitters off sideways a bit and then regains its balance. And every time I see that, I get a I get a thud in the pit of my stomach. It's like, sure.
0: I feel like, oh, what a terrible thing to do.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: I have that video on my computer and I know exactly what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, it just like, feels wrong. He just kind of walks up to it, whoomp, Yeah, And there's that little part going, oh, poor robot. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Leave him alone! Yeah, so I, I mean, and so I, my, uh, you know, I I still myself would argue that it would be difficult, unless unless there is this, um, this idea that out of an assemblage of neurons, as it were, that make up our brain, that out of that emerges individual self... um, and that is what we mean by a soul, because we don't have a scientific definition of the soul, right? The Bible doesn't mm-hmm. give us a scientific definition. Uh, so uh, you know, while it would be, it would, it, you know, I could be convinced, and I and I think, yeah, absolutely, the way to, to, uh, um, to, to go forward would be to be cautious, mm-hmm. you know, about about assuming the negative. So um, yeah, this man, I mean. We could talk for another ten hours, I think, yep. <laughs> and not cover yeah. not cover everything.
0: Yeah, as as you can see, listeners, we have only just begun to scratch the surface on this one. Uh, so I expect you know, with all these issues that we brought up, you can look forward to us uh, returning uh, to this issue at some point, uh, since we've introduced some some of the big ideas. Um, so, any last thoughts before we head for the door?
2: i got nothing
0: my brain is melted yep okay (laughs) uh do we have any uh listener feedback uh, before we uh, wrap things up
1: uh yes yes we should have done this at the outset and now i've uh i've forgotten but i i do uh we definitely had um uh boy i closed my facebook page um
0: it's all right. We'll get it next episode. We'll get sure. it next episode. Sounds Listener, good. Listener, whoever you are.
1: Marco Olivero. Marco Olivero is who it is from Facebook. Um, uh. Said he appreciated the, uh, the Arrival episode, uh, which was posted uh, a while back, and was curious, um, uh, apart from Free Will, which we talked about in that episode, okay. are there any other theological categories that Chang's world presents us with uh, means of thinking about. And I think, Charles, maybe you could uh, tackle that. Uh, uh, that uh,
0: Yeah, I'm, I mean, certainly I, I can't present any answers uh, to any of these, but there are some possible areas of thought that this does bring up. Uh, one of the first ones that, uh, you know, comes to mind is uh, the question of time. Um, you know, for Listeners, if you don't remember the arrival thing, uh, go, go back and listen to the episode. Uh, but one of the, one of the main points is that uh, the aliens, referred to as heptapods, uh, experience all of time simultaneously. So that could uh, give us an opportunity to uh, start thinking about things like God and time. Does God experience all of time simultaneously? Um, mm-hmm. What is the nature of time? Um, I mean, for God to experience all of time simultaneously, all of time has to exist, I mean, and that's one of the arguments about the nature of time. You know, do, is the does the future actually exist, just as much as the past and the present exist? Uh, so yeah, there's a you know, lot, lot that we could get into there. Um, uh, another one that just it, maybe not so much about arrival specifically, but uh, what the question of extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, and, you know, as Christians, this brings up. Uh, the question of salvation: uh, Do do you know, if we come across intelligent aliens? Do they need to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? Um, did are, are they in fact fallen? If they're not fallen, what are they doing hanging around with us? Um, if they are fallen, did God provide uh, some form some some means of redemption for them? Uh, what what they're yeah? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote some of this. He wrote a uh, uh, an, art, uh, an essay uh, on religion and rocketry, uh, ways back. So yeah, uh, yes, there's there is a lot more that we could be saying.
1: I think we probably need an episode on time. That's another yeah, one we'll chalk up yeah. for a future uh, a future I like, podcast.
2: I like that idea. Will we have time I, I to will, do it uh, though? I don't know. <laughs> no, wait, that's the thing. I will chuckle
0: as I'm scheduling it. Okay. All right, so speaking In time. of future episodes, I believe that uh, uh, we had discussed uh, what we're going to talk about next, and it is going to be comets. Indeed. Uh, so, listeners, uh, if you have any feedback, uh, if you have any requests for episodes, find us on FaceMail, uh, Facebook <laughs> or email us at Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, so uh, next time we, you can uh, look forward to us uh, talking comet things The Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, so on behalf of Dan Dawson and Todd Pedler I am Charles Hackney, and thanking you for joining us for another uh, about hour and a half uh, or so of inquiring into the Book of Nature uh, look for us uh, next time when we talk comets, until then I leave you with these words of wisdom from William Shakespeare. Foul words is but foul wind, and foul wind is but foul breath. Goodbye, all.